Hi, everyone. It's Ashley. Each week here on the deck, you hear raw interviews from family members and investigators who are looking for answers to cases that, for whatever reason, remain unsolved. But unsolved crimes are often unsolved for a reason. Time has cracked and curved around some of these cases for so long that getting answers has become complicated. Well, now, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to look at an unsolved case from 1991. She's speaking to investigators, key witnesses, and loved ones who are still searching for answers on how exactly 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr. died. But here's the thing. While Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, a string of crimes and other mysterious deaths point to so much more. Tune in each week for new episodes of Counterclock Season 6 wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of the mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. You can also chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Love is more than a day on the calendar or a sign-off on a letter. Love starts with you. Show off your personal style with new Pandora jewelry pieces that radiate with your love from every angle. With Pandora's vast selection of rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and charms, there's endless ways to show what's in your heart. Write a love note to yourself or your best friend with handwritten charms or a personal engraving. Shop now at Pandora.net. Pandora. Be love. Our card this week is Deanna Patnode, the Four of Diamonds from Minnesota. In 1982, 23-year-old Deanna disappeared without a trace from a bar in South St. Paul, Minnesota. Decades later, a deck of cards would lead to some closure for her family, but ultimately leave everyone with more questions than answers. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. In February of 2006, Jim Warren was taking on one of his first assignments after being promoted to detective at the Wabashaw County Sheriff's Office in Minnesota. He was tasked with cleaning the evidence room. It's not hazing. It's just maybe the old rookie, you know, you can clean that up for such your first job. So I was cleaning it out in evidence, and I slid this box out, and it had a white cover, and I don't know what it was, so I opened the box. Tell you the truth, I don't know why I opened the box. I just did it. And um, looked down, I saw a skull, 
some bones and some clothes, and I'm like, what the heck did I, what's going on here, you know? So it kind of caught me off guard. Detective Warren turned the box around and read Bones Case, scribbled across the back, meaning that the remains were unidentified. He continued with cleaning the evidence room, but something wasn't sitting right with him. The thought of a person with a whole life and a family just held in a box in some evidence room, this is something Detective Warren couldn't get off his mind. So he decided to ask to work the case. Sheriff Rodney Barch remembers his interaction with the newly promoted detective well. Jim here brought the remains into me and said, can I work on this? And my response was, what would you possibly do different than what they did back then? And he said, well, there's some new technologies. Not only had DNA improved leaps and bounds since the Jane Doe was found in 1989, but Detective Warren reminded Sheriff Barch that the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, or BCA, was working on coming out with a brand new tool that other states had been using, a cold case playing cards deck. Detective Warren got the green light from Sheriff Barch, so he dove in head first, reviewing all of the information in the case file. But like most other Doe cases, there wasn't much for him to review. With the information he did have, though, this was the narrative he compiled. On the morning of May 20th, 1989, a group of three men were out in rural Wabasha County hunting for mushrooms. For some reason, they chose to scour a heavily wooded, steep slope that was the median between the north and southbound lanes of Highway 61, just a few miles south of Kellogg. It's a real heavy wooded area where nobody would go in there because you'd have to cross lanes of traffic, even for the mushroom hunters, to to go down there and look. So I'm guessing that no one has been in that area before the mushroom hunters. The mushroom hunters are looking for for signs of, of mushrooms from different types of trees that are dead. So hard to say why they even went uh, and looked there when there's so many other places to look, but we, we can't say. It was there that the mushroom hunters found something that stopped them in their tracks. About 60 feet away from the southbound lanes, wrapped around the trunk of a tree in kind of a U-shape, was what appeared to be a human skeleton. The hunters immediately contacted authorities who confirmed that the remains were human. We had a full skull, full, both shoulder blades, rib cages, both uh, femurs. So three, three quarters of it was recovered. It was immediately clear that the remains had been there for a while. The bones were clean, like they didn't have any tissue on them, and some had vegetation growing over them. It was also obvious right away that it wasn't by accident that the body ended up in this median, about 60 feet away from the roadway. It felt like it had been carefully placed there. Once the coroner was called to the scene and collected the remains, investigators continued searching the area for anything else that might give them a clue as to who this person was or what happened to them. I know that they were out there with uh, metal detectors uh, looking for possible uh, jewelry or, or any type of fillings that might have shown up that might have come out of the, uh, from the jaw. And they didn't find anything else other than uh, the skeletons that we ended up recovering and then some clothes. The clothes found were an off-white sweater with a collar covered in white buttons and off-white striped knee-high socks. Once the coroner examined the bones, he concluded that they belonged to a young woman. 20 to 30 years old, standing around 5 feet 1 inches to 5 feet 5 inches tall. 
And because of the bleaching of the bones and the fact that vegetation had grown over them, the coroner estimated that they had been there, hiding on that median, for about five years. Sheriff Barch remembers there was evidence of blunt force trauma to the skull, but the coroner couldn't rule that as the cause of death. Actually, he wasn't able to rule any cause of death because he had so little to work with, which also meant that he couldn't rule a manner of death, like homicide, accident, or natural causes. But there was something he could tell from the skeleton. The woman had been attacked or maybe in some kind of accident, either at the time of her death or shortly before she died. She had a severe fracture of the upper right arm and a hip injury, both of which appeared to be untreated. Again, the coroner couldn't determine if those injuries were something she received as she was killed, like if she had been beaten or hit by a car, or if they were something suffered before her death that just went untreated. Authorities got to work right away trying to figure out who she was. They compared the remains with missing persons reports from all over the state, but nothing was matching up. They even tried expanding their search to North and South Dakota, even Wisconsin and Iowa, but still there was no one reported missing who matched their Jane Doe. The only resource investigators had at their fingertips was the local media. The sheriff's office put out a sketch done by an artist of what the woman may have looked like in life, hoping to jog someone's memory. When nothing really came of that, investigators then sent the skull off to state authorities to have a clay composite made which would be a bit more lifelike than the artist's rendering. Once completed, a photo of the clay composite was shared with the public. I'll put a photo of it in the blog post for this episode at thedeckpodcast.com. But even with the more realistic rendering of what the woman probably looked like, still no one was coming forward saying that they recognized her. While they would give you a pretty realistic look, You'd have to use your imagination a little bit to put that that clay structure to a real face. And I think that was some of the problems back then. Although investigators didn't know who this woman was, what caused her death, or even if there was foul play involved, they wanted to cover all of their bases. So they began questioning people. The BC, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension for the state of Minnesota, and our investigator, and then the sheriff, investigated these the three mushroom hunters and did backgrounds and, and um, to make sure that, hey, is this legit or do we need to look into it? Investigators determined that the hunters weren't suspicious and didn't have any more information to offer. They truly just stumbled upon the woman's body and there was nothing more to it. Police also questioned some people who'd been working on Highway 61 and others who'd worked on the nearby railroad, but they didn't know anything either. After that, the case just went cold. For 17 years, this woman sat in a box on a shelf waiting for the right person to come along. Detective Warren knew he was that person and he was ready to spring into action. Busy parents have enough on their plates without adding your children's homework to the list as well. IXL is an excellent resource for homework help, which is especially nice for parents who are rusty on school info themselves. And methods have changed over the years, too. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 
Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. From studies done in almost every state in the country, the kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. A month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring, so now you could get your child the help they need at an affordable price. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And the DEC listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash DEC. Visit IXL.com slash DEC to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I can remember sitting in my high school Spanish class looking down at the ground just hoping, desperately hoping, I wouldn't get called on. Because languages have never come easy for me. And even after all those years of studying in school, I felt so insecure. Then as my husband and I started exploring international travel recently, he convinced me that it was time to give language another try. So naturally, we found Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop or can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone offers 25 languages and they have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing your words. As my family continues to explore future travel, I know I'm going to take advantage of that because I want to feel as confident and respectful as possible. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the DEC listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash DEC. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash deck today. I immediately jumped to this new technology of maybe sending in the skull out because I looked at the clay composite and said, well, the technology is a lot better today than it was. So that's the first step I did. Warren did some digging and found that Louisiana State University was renowned for the work their anthropology unit was doing. So he got in contact with them to see what options he had. They said that they could make a realistic, computer-enhanced clay facial reconstruction, and all they would need to do that was the skull. So Detective Warren sent it off to be examined. While he was waiting for the facial reconstruction results, he also looked into other ways of figuring out the woman's identity— including getting her on the new cold case playing cards deck that the BCA was putting together. It proved to be a bit of an uphill battle, though, because Wabasha County already had a face on the deck, Donna Ingersoll, who we actually did an episode on last year. You see, most of these decks aren't made up of just one department's cold cases. It's usually a statewide thing, and different agencies will submit the cases that they need help with most. So for a county inhabited by a fraction of a percent of the state's population, it seemed like a stretch for them to get two of the 52 cases featured. But Detective Warren was persistent, and he convinced the BCA to put the Wabasha County Jane Doe on a card. He was hoping to have the new and improved facial reconstruction back from LSU before the cards were printed. But the turnaround time was too tight. They ended up having no other choice but to put the old, original clay reconstruction on the card instead. In 2008, the playing cards were finally released. They were handed out to 515 police departments and 75 jails. And according to Pioneer Press, 10,000 decks were distributed to inmates at state prisons. In addition to all of that, PDFs of the cards were posted online on the Minnesota Department of Public Safety's website so anyone could see the cases featured. 
To everyone's surprise, soon after their release, the playing cards generated a promising tip. Just a few weeks after the launch, a man was surfing the internet when he stumbled across the playing cards on the department's website. And that's when he saw the Four of Diamonds, the Wabasha County Jane Doe. Here's a snippet from a press conference held by the BCA and the Department of Corrections. He recognized the photo that was on the card as appearing to be similar to a neighbor of his when he was growing up. And this neighbor disappeared when he was about 10 years old. He relied on stories uh, from his own family uh, to kind of piece a few things together, and he called in with this tip. The neighbor he named was Deanna Patnode from Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, which is a southern suburb of St. Paul. BCA Assistant Superintendent Dave Bierga said one of their agents, quote, took this thing and ran with it, end quote. In December of 2008, investigators were able to track down a woman named Chloe Hughesby, Deanna's older sister. Chloe confirmed what the neighbor said, that her sister Deanna was missing. They'd never filed the missing persons report, but they hadn't seen or heard from her since the early 80s. There were records that the family had called police to say that they hadn't seen Deanna, but they never filed an official report, which is why it was so hard to identify her remains. I know our family cared, and I know there's still family around, so, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around if you called the police the one time, and why wouldn't you follow up? And maybe they said, we'll call back if she don't show up in two days. And that was just, that was it. That she went on vacation and she never came back. As frustrating as it is, Detective Warren told us this isn't an uncommon thing to see in cases from decades ago. Things back then happened like that, where sometimes maybe the family didn't have trust in law enforcement. Maybe they called them and said they were good and nothing ever was reported. I, don't, I can't say that for a fact. I can't blame anybody or point fingers. But to me, by reading what I read, it sounds like maybe they didn't think it was she'd be found or she was just a common to have her leave for a day or two. And that I don't know, but I'm just speculating. But a lot of times that happens and she was never seen again and there was never ever a missing persons report made on her. And again, the times have changed. And we're not talking about a 12 year old talking about an adult, and, and a lot of times back then they'd say, well, she's an adult, she can go where she wants. And missing persons were, were taken differently than they are today. Reported or not, Deanna's family had felt the hole that her absence left in their family. Chloe said she was dumbfounded and amazed when she got a call that her sister had possibly been found. It renewed a hope that she and her family had let go of long, long ago. Now, she was out of state by then, living in Iowa, but she was able to provide DNA for comparison. It's worth noting that in the press conference held by the BCA and the DOC, Chloe pronounced her sister's name as Dina, and unfortunately, we were unable to get a hold of her for an interview. So for consistency's sake, we're pronouncing her name Deanna, which is how detectives pronounce it. Anyways, even before the results of the test came back, investigators were pretty convinced that Deanna was indeed their Jane Doe. Remember how I said that police initially thought the woman had been hit by a car or in some kind of accident because she had some pretty severe injuries? Well, investigators learned that Deanna had gotten badly hurt just a few months before she vanished. She jumped out of the back of a pickup, and no one knows why she jumped, but she jumped out of a, a moving vehicle and on a gravel road. And that caused a, a severe upper right arm fracture and also um, an injury to her right hip. 
Deanna's injuries perfectly matched up with what the coroner back in 1989 concluded from the remains. Just a few weeks after Chloe gave her DNA, everyone's suspicions were confirmed. The test concluded, beyond all medical certainty, that the remains were Deanna Patnode. As part of that process, another autopsy was completed, and this time, drawing from his findings and the new information that they'd learned, the medical examiner ruled that Deanna's manner of death was homicide. During the press conference held by the BCA and the DOC, Chloe described the mixed emotions that came with the DNA match. Grief for her sister's death, but at the same time, relief for finally having answers after all of these years. She said, quote, We just never thought that we'd hear anything, and this is just phenomenal. We're so thankful that she got to be one of the playing cards because she wouldn't be identified. I know that. I mean, I didn't give up. I always expected her to walk through the door, too, but no, it's Deanna, end quote. Investigators were also glad to finally have a name for their Jane Doe and a level of closure for Deanna's family. But this was just the beginning of a brand new investigation. How did she end up there and who killed her? There was a problem. Because she was never reported missing, that meant there wasn't another investigative file out there that Detective Warren could piece together with his own. He'd have to start from scratch, tracking the moments of someone who went missing 27 years before, which proved to be difficult because that meant that they'd have to rely on the memories of her friends and family from nearly three decades ago to piece together a timeline of her last known movements. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000-plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code DECK at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. When it comes to your health, there should be no compromises. Don't go back to that doctor who doesn't fully listen to you or rushes through your appointment. Instead, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Search by location, availability, and insurance. No compromises. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. And you don't have to wait forever to get in with someone good. When I looked online, the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score some same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com deck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash deck. ZocDoc.com deck. Based on everyone's recollection, the last time Deanna was seen was on October 26, 1982. 
She was out for a night with friends at the Buckboard Bar on Concord Boulevard in South St. Paul, which is roughly 80 miles away from where she was found in Wabasha County. Friends who were with her at the bar that night recalled that at some point they saw her leaving with someone else. Now, at first, it was reported that she was seen leaving with a friend, but later that was changed to her seen leaving with an unknown man. Now, because this happened nearly 30 years prior, the friends couldn't recall what the man even looked like. Like, no guess at height, build, hair color, age, none of that. Which, I mean, that was at least something, because it probably meant this guy wasn't someone her friends knew, so he likely wasn't a close friend of Deanna's and probably wasn't someone who went to that bar a lot. The friends also weren't able to provide a vehicle description, but it's not super clear if they even saw her get into a car with this mystery man at all. I mean, it's very possible that she just walked out of the bar with the man and then they went their separate ways. South St. Paul is only a few miles from Invergrove Heights, so maybe she tried to walk home and got abducted on the way. Or maybe she tried to hitchhike, which investigators learned she wasn't against doing. If that was the case, maybe she got picked up by a shady character along the way. Regardless, it seemed like the last person who saw Deanna would have been this man that she was seen leaving with. It would have been great to track him down, but with literally no physical description to go from, this task was impossible. So they had to keep moving in directions that actually let them press forward. Detectives learned more about Deanna, and they confirmed that she had no ties whatsoever to the Wabasha County area where she was found, which meant it was unlikely that she just happened to be in that area and ran into someone. She was taken there. Detectives continued trying to track down people who may have been with or seen Deanna the night she disappeared from the Buckboard Bar, but the investigation eventually came to a screeching halt. And that's where things were when our reporting team went to Minnesota in September to interview Warren, who is now the chief deputy at the sheriff's office. But then, in January of this year, literally after this episode was written, our reporter got a call from Warren. He said that he was going through the case file again when he found something interesting that he hadn't come across before. Right around the time detectives were diving deep into Deanna's life in 2009, The sheriff's office got a call from someone that we've been asked to not identify. And this person said that their relative lived in the same neighborhood as Deanna when she disappeared. Who's the relative they're referring to? Donald Blum. That name might ring a bell for some of you because in 2000, Blum was arrested for the 1999 kidnapping and murder of 19-year-old Katie Poyer in northeastern Minnesota. He abducted her while she was working the night shift alone at a convenience store, and her remains were found on his property a few weeks later. In addition to the Poyer murder, Blum was involved in five other cases of kidnapping and or sexual assault. From what Warren can tell, back then, the sheriff wrote to him in the out-of-state prison where he was serving his time. Blum never responded, though, and investigators had nothing on him other than that statement from the relative. So they kind of just left it alone, and it faded from everyone's memory. But with where they were now, Chief Deputy Warren felt like every dead end was worth re-examining. So he decided to do some digging. He found that Blum was no longer being held in that out-of-state prison, which was in Pennsylvania. He had recently been moved to a prison right there in Minnesota, which meant it'd be much more feasible to go in person and talk with him. 
Chief Deputy Warren also discovered that Blum might have been familiar with Highway 61 where Deanna's body was found. So he was having a good feeling about this. After all of these years, maybe the answer was right in front of them all along. So he jumped right into action, wanting to interview him sooner rather than later. We actually held off on releasing this episode so we could let you all know how that interview went. But, of course, it wasn't that easy. That first call from Warren came to us on January 3rd. He said that he planned to talk with Blum in just a couple of weeks. But then we got another call on January 10th. Literal days before Warren planned to meet with him, Blum died in prison. A DOC spokesperson said that his death was expected and due to illness. Now, when I heard the news of Blum's death, my jaw dropped. And I can only imagine how Chief Deputy Warren was feeling, having been that close to speaking with one of the only potential persons of interest in a decades-old case, only for him to die days before he was going to speak with him. It's unbelievable. This is the prime example, though, of everything the deck is about. Dusting off these old cases, getting new eyes and ears on them while we can because time is precious. We're losing witnesses, persons of interest, people with information every single day. And it's important that we talk about these cases now while we still have time. Now, though Blum is dead, Warren says he's not letting the lead die with him. There are other avenues that he'll be chasing down in the near future, such as interviewing those who knew Blum in hopes of getting answers. Whether it's this lead that solves the case or one that comes years down the road, Warren told our reporting team that he's hoping this case won't be cold for much longer. And he's glad that he picked up that cardboard box all those years ago. You asked me why I wanted to work on it. Well, nothing's going to get solved unless you don't work on it, right? So you got to imagine when you go to work on something and you got, let's say, other people in your profession and even outside people saying, well, what are you, some guru? I'm like, no, it not, it's not going to get solved unless you work on it. And then, then it turns out, well, you got lucky. Yeah, we did get lucky, but guess what? We got lucky because we worked on it. I'm an optimist. And anything could bust at any time if you just work on it, right? So I'm not feeling like confident. I'm very hopeful that every swing we take, it connects to something. And it won't connect with nothing if we don't try and go up there and find out, right? So I guess I'm... I'm, instead of confident, I'm just hopeful that it's going to get solved. Not just because of this tip, but because of, I don't know, um, continuing to work on it. We asked Chief Deputy Warren and Sheriff Barge what they think happened to Deanna back in 1982. Well, no doubt we, we think she got into a vehicle with someone. There is no idea or no evidence to conclude that if there was a, any type of a, a assault on her um, sexually or not, but... We assume that an altercation occurred uh, somewhere there or on the way down here on Highway 61 where she ended up in our county. But outside of that, we just have, we have no idea on how to uh, put it together. But she could have had an altercation with somebody. She could have been, for all we know, she could have been stabbed. We know she wasn't shot. She could have been strangled. She could have hit her head on a curb and died maybe intoxicated and the person freaked out, but that's a long ways to bring a body. Something tells me that the person that did this knew the area of Highway 61 well enough to come down here and, and possibly leave her on the way to maybe 
a different state. Sheriff Bart said the fact that the two crime scenes are nearly 80 miles apart has complicated the investigation. I think one of the issues here is location, that while her body was placed here in the woods, uh, we don't think the crime happened here. We think the crime happened someplace else, and then she was placed here, uh, either either by a trucker or somebody that uh, was just driving, needed to drive through this area, knew that area. So the, there wasn't a lot of tips that came in. Um, I think, and that was probably location was more than anything in regards to, to tips. Although Deanna's loved ones have gotten the closure of finding her and knowing she's not missing anymore, Sheriff Barch says he hopes this isn't the only closure they get. First and foremost, we'll be thinking about the Padnode family and then her close friends as well to put some closure on it for them because I know this isn't uh, closed for them. I know that they think about it every day in regards to what happened to her. I know they're grateful that she was identified so that they could put her remains to rest, but the other part of this would be uh, so concerning for them as it would any of us if her family members uh, had had something like this happen to them and it was never determined how or, or who did it because that closure always or sometimes comes with somebody being held accountable for their actions. And we're certainly hopeful and hoping for that outcome on this case. Chief Deputy Warren said that he knows people out there have the answers he's looking for. And he hopes that those people are listening to this podcast. He said no bit of information is too small because it could be the missing piece of the puzzle. Just anything they knew about that evening, anything they knew, if, if they even had a description of a vehicle that she would have gotten in or the, the guy that she was with, if they were in the bar and, and didn't see her, but they knew four of their friends that they were with that evening, that we could have other people to talk to. So just anything about that night and, and anything about that bar, including if they knew of, of people that went into that bar that they might uh, question from time to time in regards to who they were and if, if they felt uneasy about this person being in the bar or if he looked at uh, you know, females a, a different way. Anything like that could be very helpful today. If you know anything about the murder of Deanna Patnode or if you were at the Buckford Bar on Concord Boulevard in South St. Paul on October 26, 1982, and you remember seeing Deanna that night, please call the Wabasha County Sheriff's Office at 651-565-3361 and ask for Chief Deputy Warren. The Deck is an audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Yeah.